the more you move up in an organization, somebody's going to come to you and say, hey, Michael, you know, for you to be able to close some of these gaps, we're probably going to have to get you a coach and really work on this gap closure and creating competencies and changing some of your habits. Once you have that conversation, it's it's a real struggle. So getting out in front of that and being undeniable so nobody comes to you. So you go to them and go, here's what I'm doing. Here's the work that I'm doing. Hey, can I get a coach? Because here's some things I want to continue to improve. That puts you in a total different position. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. Pause. Close your eyes and reflect. What image comes to mind when I say undeniable? Now, ask yourself, what's the number one thing that prevents you from becoming undeniable? What's that gap look like? What's that gap feel like? Today, we're going to break down what separates the elite who are undeniable. Undeniably, the ones to be chosen to lead in their organizations undeniably the go-tos to make big things happen, undeniably the ones that people want to follow, and undeniably the ones that elevate others to create massive impact. I'm extremely excited to be joined today by Stephen Childs, senior executive, thought leader, and executive coach, whose mission is to help others become undeniable. He recognizes that that is not easy to do. If it was, everyone would be doing it. But he has decades of experience and a research-backed system to how you can become undeniable with ease. Stephen Childs is VP and CHRO, that's the Chief Human Resources Officer, at the $8.5 billion leader Panasonic Automotive, where he's been instrumental in making it one of the most admired places to work. He's a deep passion for people-first best practices and is really relentless in working to build a culture to prove it. And this is what distinguishes him and why he's a guest today. He is willing and very intentional to share everything he has learned from others. In addition to leading Panasonic's talent management cycle, Stephen is a highly sought after global keynote speaker, executive coach certified at Columbia University, member of the Forbes Human Resources Council, and a global talent fellow at the Wharton School two times HR Executive of the Year, educated at the University of Alabama. Stephen is a sharp thinker and lifelong learner. Stephen, pleasure to have you here today. Welcome to 97% Effective. Yeah, Michael, thanks for having me, and uh, I'm excited to, to join the conversation. 
Awesome. In my intro, when I was having people picture an image with the word undeniable, what comes up for you? Yeah, so I'll close my eyes just to go through the process. But when I close my eyes, I see a lack of worry and stress about the things that need to be done to be successful. Mm. When I think undeniable, you take the stress out of your ability to be successful, whatever that means for you. And that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But whatever that success model looks like, you just take the worry and stress out of it if you can be undeniable. We're going to talk all about that. That is part of what you mentioned when you say the word ease. You speak a lot. There is a lot of your writing on the internet. I like to ask people in this age of the internet, is there, is there one thing that we won't find out about you on the internet that, that would give us some deeper insight into, into you, Stephen? Yeah, actually, I don't even know that you can find something that's not on the internet these days. But yeah, if I was to think about one thing that uh, generally surprises people who don't know me when they meet me is I'm a little bit of an adrenaline junkie. So I love motorcycles. I have several motorcycles. I, I surf, I skydive, I do Spartan races, these uh, sort of long uh, obstacle races, anything that kind of gets the blood going. And that it creates an interesting contrast kind of as, as I think about that, I think of that as very stressful. And so, but it sounds like it's something you do with a lot of ease and it's a little bit stress relieving depending on your uh, personality, maybe. We're particularly going to talk about your work as a coach internally and externally and the work you do with others. You are senior executive at Panasonic Automotive, and you've been there 25 years, uh, progressive positions, making a huge impact. So that's rare in this day and age. And it's also quite rare to see employers allow their employees to, to work outside, too. You, you're a global keynote speaker, and, and you work with executives outside. Could you share what enabled or how you created that, that really powerful combo, being able to both work at Panasonic and outside? Yeah, I think uh, one of the biggest things that sort of enable that is the culture that you have as a company. Mm. So I'm lucky enough, you know, a lot of the work that we've been doing over the last six or seven years is create a culture that really put people before product. And if you have a culture that has trust at the top of that, then a lot of the worry goes away from a corporate standpoint of, am I doing something externally that's going to put harm or be a conflict of interest to that of Panasonic? And in, and in the cases of keynote speaking or coaching and those kind of things, it's actually a benefit to Panasonic. And sort of one of the, one of the agreements that me and the company had, my, even my president had when I went to get this certification at Columbia in coaching was it would have external and internal coaching. Of course, the external coaching is part of the requirements that you need to even get the coaching certification. So, but just imagine the more I coach external, the more I learn and the more valuable my coaching capabilities are internal. So there's a huge benefit to that. And the other thing that uh, you talked about was sort of the speaking engagements and helping others is uh, it's the same premise. So think through every time I go and help a corporation or I go speak, I'm also learning, right? So I'm listening to other speakers. I'm meeting other people. All of those things have extreme and have had extreme value in helping our organization uh, move forward uh, at an accelerated rate. Other keynote speakers, other people I've met, 
I've always tapped into their uh, capabilities and skill set, right? I might speak on a topic, but then I hear about four or five topics that I'm not so strong at. I pick that up and then uh, we leverage that inside of Panasonic. So it's, it's a win-win. Yeah, so you're constantly bringing that back into the organization. Um, and it sounds like you also have a very good relationship with a lot of the key stakeholders as you built that into the culture. Talk a little bit here as we start about Panasonic. You've had quite a career there. 8,000 employees, $8.5 billion business. And in a very competitive industry, that's also the automotive industry is, is constantly being disrupted. You have a phrase that I really liked. It's, you want to make it a place where highly talented people come and stay. And that is kind of a key to the organization's success. Do you, do you want to highlight anything here about your mission mandate or what matters here in terms of success at, at Panasonic? Yeah, I mean, a lot of that came out of the culture work we started about seven, seven years ago. We knew that we had, we we're very successful as a company, right? I think we're, you know, 8 billion, maybe globally, 2.5, just in North America alone. And we were growing uh, pretty rapidly. But if you look at the guts of our organization, they were not so great. Turnover, glass door scores, EOS surveys, and we knew we had to do something different. And we had this saying at Panasonic ever since the founders started it over 100 years ago was people before products, which looks really good on a wall. But to figure out how to transition that from a wall into practical, everyday leadership uh, experiences was something different. But that's that's basically what we did. We put people before product, mm. which means culture came first. We listened to the people. And to your point, our goal was to make sure people came to work every day because they wanted to, not because they needed a job. Anybody can go get a job anywhere. But how do we really change our organization where people come here because of the people? And now we've been able to create that. And we've been able to see that from a turnover perspective, our EOS surveys. We're, our turnover is a lot less than half of the industry. And we compete with uh, Google and Amazon and all these companies. And we didn't, we lost people during like great resignation, that whole time frame, certainly. But we had a lot of people that came back. Because they said it felt different. Hmm. Yeah, so you guys really walk the talk. And I think that's a, that's a great point. It may come up further in our discussion because a lot of organizations will have the slogans, the pieces up on the wall, but it's very different inside in terms of who's getting promoted, what's being valued, what gets attention. Yeah, we say what gets tolerated and what doesn't get tolerated. Hmm. So those are the kind of words we use. Yeah. We're very clear about what does and doesn't get tolerated. Mm. That, that makes a huge difference. Talking about being undeniable, you, in a previous discussion that you and I had, you really talked about this part around being in the driver's seat of your career. And you also said we're both executive coaches, that if your company gets you a coach, it's a sign that it's already too late. Say more here about driving your career, your perspectives here, and, and what you mean by that. It's too late if you've been assigned a coach. Yeah, maybe first about driving your own career. You know, a big part of this be undeniable, be undeniable is putting your in a, put yourself in a position. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But putting yourself in a position to drive your own career. And you can do that. And I'll talk about the fact that, you know, 90 something, 90 percent of people won't do the hard work to put them 
put themselves in a position to be undeniable. Uh, and there's some things you can do. I won't say easy things. Mm. There's a four or five things you can do all or hard. And if you do them, then you're going to be undeniable. What tends to happen to your point, if you, if you don't do those things, or if you don't need part of those things, the more you move up in an organization, somebody's going to come to you and say, Hey, Michael, you know, for you to be able to close some of these gaps, we're probably going to have to get you a coach and really work on this gap closure and creating competencies and changing some of your habits. Once you have that conversation, it's it's a real struggle for you to take that move forward and be successful. You're already way behind the sort of the eight ball, so to speak. So getting out in front of that and being undeniable so nobody comes to you. So you go to them and go, here's what I'm doing. Here's the work that I'm doing. Hey, can I get a coach? Because here's some things I want to continue to improve. That puts you in a total different position, uh, not defensive position, very proactive position to be uh, undeniable. So being very proactive and I mean, let's go into it. You know, undeniable is, is the word you like to use and, and this phrase, which, which I absolutely love. <laughs> and it's very central to, to your coaching, what you just talked about. Talk more about being undeniable. And, and you mentioned four or five things, you know, maybe a, a sense of what some of those are. Yeah, the, the whole premise of being undeniable is putting the work in, right? If I was going to summarize it at the top. Mm. It would be you've got to put the work in. You've got to be willing to put the work in. And again, I already mentioned the, the research is really crazy on this, that people hate change. Uh, and this is part of my coaching. And mm. just give me an example of how much people hate change, even when it's, they're changing themselves for the better, uh, to be undeniable. Uh, even if you take some medical research on change and somebody comes to you and say, hey, Michael, you're going to be blind in about two years, unless you do these two things, take this in the morning and do these drops in the afternoon. And if you do that every day, then you have a really good chance not to be blind. What do you think the percentages are of those people that actually do that? I'm hoping it's high, but I'm guessing that it's, it's not. <laughs> yes, less than 50%. Less than 50% of people will actually do stuff to one, not go blind or even save their lives, whether it's heart conditions or anything else. So it's pretty interesting. The research says if you're willing to put the work in, you already won. Mm. Because most people are not going to put the work in. And that could be getting a coach, being proactive, figuring out how to close gaps, work on habit change. What are those things that you can do different related to habit change? Uh, and there's a lot of ways to go about creating skills. And I would say not easy but easy processes to be able to create skills. You do something 15 to 18 minutes a day. Who can't do something for 15 to 18 minutes a day? For a year, you're 90% better than almost anybody in that field, whether that's kickboxing or playing a guitar or anything. Any, you pick the skill and you put that level of 15 to 18 minutes a day for a year then you've already won. That's undeniable. The science is there. It tells you it works. But again, the percentages of people that are even willing to spend 18 minutes a day to dramatically improve themselves is low. 
and I hear a lot from from clients that, hey, I am putting in the work. I am doing the things, but there are my boss is blocking me. There are things in the organization like biases against me. Well, let me first toss that to you. When you're seeing that, which you see kind of cross your organization, or you're hearing that as a coach in a conversation, how do you respond to that? What do you think about it? Yeah, it's not even close to true. Not that there's not different things in organizations that make it difficult or getting the right visibility or having a you know a terrible leader that may be directly above you. But the whole point of that undeniability piece is when you do the work and you get yourself in new skills and you're proactive and you're having conversations with people at other companies that are so much better at your job than you are and you're picking up those skills, you're networking. You've got this network within your organization where you're not just sitting at your desk every day. You're going and asking the president questions. You're going to tap into the COO. You're going to talk to the CFO about some gaps you may have from a financial perspective, whatever those things are. All of that, companies are begging people to take ownership for their own career. And if you're the one that does it and you really, again, you don't even have to do everything that I kind of normally uh, ask you to do in part of my coaching, you can do half of that and you're still going to be in a position to be looked at for promotion or rotation assignments because you're going to, one, you're going to ask, mm-hmm. you're going to ask for rotation assignments. You're going to ask people what, what are some gaps you need to close. Then you're going to go work on the, uh, the gaps. Most people would never do those things. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, as you say that I'm, I'm incredibly fond of the, the expression that brick walls are put there for a reason. They want to see who wants to get to the other side. And most people aren't doing the work to climb over that other side, which, which leads us to this question around coaching and how coaching, because we all have blind spots. We may not be aware of certain things that we may be doing that undercuts us or that we should be doing that we're not aware of. So let's, let's talk about coaching as, as a vehicle or as a way to, to help you in that journey to become undeniable. And, and I guess first, because as a CHRO, you've seen every vehicle that can you know, be used to help people. Training programs, there's now a flurry of online things. Sometimes they're just putting in the work, like you said. But could you speak to where coaching kind of sits in this and is helpful to people versus, say, lots of other vehicles that can help people get where they want to go or to that other side of the brick wall? Yeah. Yeah. I can make this really quick too. So think about all those things that you were just talking about, whether it's a training program. I've been through all of them personally too, right? Training program, internal training, external training, mentorships, uh, rotation assignments, you name it. I've gone through it. The, The thing that misses with most of them is training cares nothing about your success whether it's internal, external, whether it's an online course you're taking, there's no accountability to that training for you to be successful. Mm. I could say that with mentors. Mentors help you move through obstacles, learn things faster, accelerating your knowledge. And some mentors are really great and they become accountability buddies, but it's a little different from a, than a coaching perspective, right? Where a coaching perspective is your commitment to one, be very vulnerable, 
So you're committing to somebody else that I'm going to, I'm going to listen. We're going to walk through this together. The coach has a lot of accountability. The coach, number one thing is to help you be successful. So it is a vehicle for success. If that coach doesn't have a really good process to listen, where do you want to go? Help you understand the roadmap for that journey that you want to go on and drive some pretty high accountability from a coaching aspect, then they're probably not a good coach. Coaches care about your success even more than uh, family members. And I have a lot of stories on that from uh, people that uh, unintentionally family members can really derail some, uh, some success. But coaches really kind of stick to what is the goal of the individual, and they put together a success roadmap to help that person succeed. And again, a lot of a really high level of accountability from that coach. None of the other mechanisms include your boss. Your boss doesn't care near as much about your success as their own or the company's normally. I won't say that about every boss, but they're not trained to be high level of accountability and success leaders. Most are. And say, because the word accountability came up multiple times, and I, 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 that is a huge part of the, the coaching relationship. And, and for you and your engagements, I mean, what types of things are you finding or, or really is effective in keeping clients accountable that you work with? Yeah, I can just tell you, even as of uh, this morning, I have clients that are no longer technically clients because we ended our coaching assignment. I'm still texting them. I texted them this morning to go, where are you on this? Did you stop? Did you get up? Did you do the things? Are you still doing the things that you promised that you would do in our coaching? I'm not getting paid for that, right? That's part of uh, what was built into this accountability promise that I kind of make to, to at least my coaching clients is that accountability, even during the coaching, is probably a little heavier mm-hmm. because every time they come to a coaching session, they don't want to come not doing their homework because we talk a lot about that. If you're going to do this, do it. Just do it. And I'll, I'll ask you where you are with it. I'll help you catch up. But you just got to do it. So there's a lot of uh, I don't want to show up to my next coaching session without my homework being done. But then that's literally what that email said yesterday is, hey, I didn't want to respond to you until I did it. Mm. So you sent me a text saying, did I do it? I didn't. I did it before I responded back. And that's sort of a just an example of even how that accountability kind of keeps going. Yeah, I, I mean, and to be clear here, you're accountable, you're in their camp, but going back to what you said earlier, they're doing the work, right? You know, this is this is not Stephen coming in and training and showing you and uh, leading your that's conversations great. for you. It's that accountability piece to speak about you know, some of the clients and you work with very senior leaders um, inside and outside. What is the, the, you know, kind of typical, I guess we would call presenting issue. As you work with a client, obviously more things come up, but what is the typical presenting issue that is brought before you guys when you start? Yeah. Well, I think uh, statistically it's probably executive presence, which is very vague, Yeah. right? Somebody, some boss tells them that they need to go work on executive presence uh, so they, they start looking for a coach to figure out what that looks like and what that really means. And then, again, once you get the coaching started and you start really talking about what executive presence is, and you start helping them understand, here's all the things that you could focus on, focus on if you really wanted to 
improve your executive presence. Then people narrow down that scope uh, through the coaching to say, okay, if we're going to focus on this for the next three months or six months, I want to focus on these things. So they really kind of pick and choose what's the most important to them, which is very important in a coaching session. Uh, they got to have buy-in and some some want to, right? And then they generally narrow themselves down to a, a subset of executive presence to work. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, Back to our interview. I mean, talk more also about executive presence. This is a huge part of my practice as well. And and many out there listening, you know, when I poll them, <laughs> this this topic comes up because it is that frustrating piece of most executives will say, well, I I can't describe it, but I know it when I see it. And when I'm doing a 360, I'll say, well, let's talk about what that, you know, specifics and and how that's showing up. As you work with individuals, you know, part of it also is maybe they don't know what they don't know. (laughs) And so you're bringing in a certain expertise there, but obviously kind of working with them. Can you share a little bit of how you at least get them, you know, at a high level thinking about executive presence when it is such an amorphous topic? Yeah. The the cool thing is I ran into a model uh, a couple of years ago, Brooke Volkovich, uh, Kellogg Business School had a really great model for executive presence, and it's it's really equation. Mm. And when I share this with my clients, almost every one of them gravitates toward it. It's easy to understand. It's easy to follow. It's easy to kind of break up in those segments as that I was talking to you about to work on. But it's it's that idea of credibility plus ease, and I'll talk about you know credibility and ease divided by ego. And so if you think about the credibility piece, this is really your expertise, your your ability, your preparedness. Uh, a lot of work, depending on uh, levels in the organization, really have to work on what they think is preparedness versus what is executive preparedness. And then integrity, which is a really critical piece of, of credibility. So credibility, again, is uh, sort of the expertise, preparedness, and integrity. The ease part that I'm talking about is really this ability to take care of yourself so you can be that top-level executive. And and so many people just brush right over that Hmm. and don't even know that it's really part of an executive uh, presence model. And those are things like diet and exercise and sleep and social support. The amount of coaching I do on sleep, uh, I do a lot of coaching on uh, Dr. Matthew Walker and uh, why we sleep and a lot of the science behind that. But that's all that ease aspect of things. So the funny part, Michael, is when I start a lot of this executive coaching and people, you know, and I share the model with them. Here's kind of what this executive presence model is. Generally, when they come into coaching, they come in with a whole different mindset. I'm going to work on these competencies. I'm going to work on my ability to hold myself extremely accountable. I'm going to lead with empathy. I'm going to lead with compassion. I'm going to have active listening skills. I'm going to influence across the company. All great things. But most, when I say most, 60 to 65, 70% of the people, once we start, they start picking and choosing where they want to focus because we'll talk about habit building in just a minute too, which is really critical to the success 
is they focus in the ease. They're like, all right, so diet. So I'm going to, I'm going to do this or I'm going to, I'm going to do walking. I'm going to walk every day. I'm going to walk every day for 63 days. I'm going to change that habit. I'm going to go from somebody who wants to be a walker to a walker. I want to change my diet. And so those are some things that they tend to focus on because it's, I don't know, easy to grab a hold of and something they've probably done in the past. They just didn't do it with the science behind it. Mm-hmm. I like that model a lot because there tends to be this executive presence is looking like a certain model of individual. Share you know, the keys to, to building habits and what really works with your clients. Yeah, so I, I kind of lean on two different things, right? I lean on this idea of uh, it's 63 days, Dr. Caroline Leaf. Uh, she's done about 30 years of research in this space and kind of retouched on this. Does it take 21 days to create a habit? Does it take whatever? So her, her research basically says it takes about 63 days to create a habit. And if you think of 63 days for anything, it's sort of like anybody can do 15 minutes a day doing something, right, long-term to create a skill. Any, anybody can do something for 63 days. So the, the science behind it is, and it varies by person. So I generally, I talk about the 63-day model, but then I just encourage people to do 90 days. So anything that I'm going to do personally, if I'm going to change a habit, create a new one, get rid of an old one, I'm going to do it for 90 days. And that 90 days is to really change those neural pathways in your brain to where you were somebody who wants to walk. And now you're somebody who's created these neural pathways that you're just going to start. You're going to be a walker, right? Or you're going to not eat sugar, right? So I'm going to be somebody who is changing my diet. And I decide for 90 days, I did this, by the way, you know, take sugar completely out of your diet for 90 days. That's hard. But all you got to do is for 90 days. After 90 days, it changes the neural pathways in your brain. And all those things that were hard just from a change perspective now are so much easier, like dramatically easier. And so that's one of the concepts I use is we pick, we narrow the focus on things they want to change a habit. I don't even care what the habit is because mm-hmm. we're just going to learn to change a habit. And then we pick something and we create that habit using sort of this 63-day premise. The other piece that we use, uh, one of my favorite books is James Clear uh, has the Atomic Habit book, which I love. And it's the aggregation of marginal gains, which we say don't bite the elephant off, you know, in too big of chunks. You got to do it a little bit at a time. And the aggregation of marginal gains is this concept of if you just go in and you say, I'm going to improve 1% every day. I'm just going to go in, do something a little bit every single day dramatic effect that has over a long-term period. Same thing that 15 minute, 18 minutes a day, minuscule in your, in your day, really minuscule. A year, you play guitar, you speak Spanish, you're an airline, you, you, you're a private pilot, whatever those things are that I've kind of worked with people to, to change uh, sort of their, I say change their life, sounds dramatic, but it literally changes their life 15 minutes a day is that aggregation of marginal gains. So I stick primarily with those two, especially first three months, six months uh, of really just diving in. And then you can habit stack. Then you can go, well, I, I, learned, I did walking. Now I'm going to really figure out how to influence. 
what are those things I need to do to really change my ability to influence relationships or whatever? Then you create your habit uh, stacking process for creating that habit. And then you can go to the next one and go to the next one. And I have people that basically say, man, I've had it stacked about six or eight things uh, since uh, a year ago, since uh, we had our coaching. And it's, it's pretty powerful to see people just keep on with that habit creation. By the time we get to 90 days, one, they're so proud of themselves for committing to something for 90 days. It's an endorphin builder just in itself. It changes really the chemical compounds in their brain from having these wins. And that's a win. You do, so, you do something for 90 days. That BSCHRO and all the things I've accomplished, stopping sugar for 90 days, man, I was really proud of myself. I mean, and I've done a lot of different things, and I was probably more proud of myself for not doing sugar for 90 days than I was uh, getting a global fellow at Wharton for talent management right? because it was really hard. But now I can do anything for 90 days, right? It sets you on a different path to go, now I'm going to do this, move it over to whatever the next best thing is or something they didn't even know was important 90 days ago that now is really, really important to them. Yeah, I had a very similar experience when I, I dropped eating meat. I thought that was going to be impossible. And then here I am three and a half years later, learning a lot from, from that process. This also makes me think about, as one article that I love that you, you wrote, it's the WTF. And for those out there, you're immediately thinking, where's this going, especially coming from a chief human resources officer. But it struck me, and as we've had this conversation, that this WTF that you refer to in the article really embodies a, a lot of the process, uh, the mindset that is is the key to kind of moving forward and, and developing habits. You want to just share some some highlights from that? Yeah, it's it was pretty interesting. Uh, one of the things I was doing, especially internal from a leadership development standpoint, it was I was trying to figure out how to connect and make things stick with our leadership team and the neuro leadership institute david rock and his team i had you know I'd, I'd worked with some of his team to do some things internally on growth mindset with our organization and one thing they mentioned was if you're going to sell something and if that's selling something is going to be a leadership model or a goal setting process or whatever it's going to be it's got to be sticky and so I really started thinking through that. What does that mean? It's got to be sticky. It's just branding 101, right? This thing's got to be sticky. How do you get the hook into somebody to really think through, if I'm going to have a goal setting process, then I've got to create a model that people remember when they walk away from the conversation that they can replicate, replicate later because they remember. And that's where WTF came from. And mm. again, it's a clean version, as you mentioned. Uh, but you, it, it basically gets to, you got to want it. Uh, and that want could be a lot of different things. It doesn't have to be your biggest passion in life. This is kind of going towards goal creation, mm -hmm. right? But if your boss tells you that you've got to get this done in this year, or you're not going to be here, you're going to tend to want something, right? So you got to really want it. You got to think about it all the time. So how do you do that? How do you keep it, you know, uh, front, the front part of your mind? And for me, a lot of uh, vision boards. Hmm. I write it down. I do vision boards on my phone. I have it on whiteboard. So there's no shortage of me seeing this all the time. And then I focus on it. 
I spend the time working on those things that are going to get to that end result, right? This goes to putting the work in. So if you do the WTF model, and I had a president that sat through a small version of that, then he asked me to do his commitment ceremony speech for his graduating class on the WTF model. Hmm. Uh, And I still have people that will text me or email me WTF baby, because they finished something that was on their goal list. Hmm. Uh, So it's, it's, it's just real sticky way of thinking through how to accomplish your goals. Yeah. So want it, think and focus WTF. And and again, the piece you wrote about uh, let's move away from resolutions into this model is really powerful on a, you know, a very practical level. And I know you have kind of observed, you know, what some of these individuals do as they, they rise and they make an impact in organizations. What would be one or two that, that you would just kind of point out, say, here's, here's what, you know, these folks are doing that separates them from the other 90%. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned, Michael, is I tend to focus on the research, right? Which helps because again, if you focus on research and there's peer reviewed data and, it's, it's hard to say, no, you're not right. This doesn't work. The w- one thing that I, I kind of go back to, there was a 10-year study, a genome project study. You're probably familiar with this study where they went for 10 years and looked at all the things that made CEOs the best CEOs. Again, very long study, 10-year 10 10 year study, and they narrowed it down to sort of four things from that C-suite level. And the four things really came down to decision-making, So with speed and confidence uh, and conviction, not waiting around for 100 percent of the information to make a decision. How do you become confident and comfortable making decisions with 70 to 75 percent of the information? Right. Engaging for impact. So this is really understanding your stakeholders, seeing through things, seeing things through their light, communicating really, really well with them not just running amok once you hear this is what we're going to put in place and move with it. It's constantly communicating with those stakeholders. The ability to navigate change and then at the end of the day, deliver and reliability in the products. So those came out to be the top four things. Why do we get so many leaders who rise to the top who are not effective or run their organizations in the ground? Thoughts on this? Yeah, it's not a real long answer, to be honest, Mm. right? Think about sort of where I started in this podcast when I said 90% won't do the work. So now you're trying to fill all of these key roles across multiple companies and multiple slots with 10% population. Mm. You only have 10% of the people willing to do the work. And you've got to promote a lot of different people that have not done the work in hopes that this is going to encourage them to do more work or we can train them into this or we can develop these skill sets. Sometimes you can, right? But unless they own it themselves, it's hard to, you know this, it's hard to muscle people through skill development, especially these levels of skill development, unless they have a real desire to want to be in that role. So it really comes down to the fact that the percentages of people who are willing to do the work at that level to be proficient. I'll just give you a real quick story. When I was moved into the CHRO role, the first thing I did was I started to connect with other CHROs. I should have done this early, right? So this is going back seven years ago. And they put me in, I spoke to two or three CHROs. I realized really quick, I'm not even qualified. 
based off the people that I just talked to. <laughs> I don't even know why my boss put me in this role. But those were really highly qualified CHROs. And so at that point, I go, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do everything I can to talk to people who are better than me so I can close that gap and earn the job that somebody gave me before I actually earned it. And we do that all the time with people. We put them in jobs that they haven't earned yet, maybe by time and maybe by, yeah, they, they have pretty good skill set to be able to do that. But unless somebody goes, I'm going to put the work in, then you're just trying to muscle people through organizations. They fail. That group fails. It becomes an issue. The company, depending how what position you put them in, the company could certainly fail. But uh, it's it's just based off the math of if you want to be that 10 percent, there's that's the undeniable part. There's yeah. no way you're not going to succeed if you do the work. How'd you do that? You were at that level probably reaching out to, you know, if you've got to look above you like the Fortune 10, right? CHROs. Microsoft and <laughs> HP and IBM. And, and our listeners and, out yeah. there are saying. How did he do that? Or how do I do that? If I'm down the organization, I see someone I admire. I want to learn from them. They're busy. Again, most people aren't reaching out to them. So if you don't yes. ask, you're, you're never going to get a, a yes or That's a right. no. But, you know, operationalize it. Is there a good way to kind of do that or like a, a bad way that you're not going to get a result? Yeah, I don't know if there's a bad way, yeah. right? So I think the good way, and I've actually built this into – goals and objectives for my direct reports. I said, every quarter you've got to figure out, or every half of the year, you've got to figure out people that do your job better than you. Mm. You need to reach out to them. The funny thing is you said it. Most people are not reaching out to them. So if you reach out and say, Hey, look, I just got it. I'm just got put in this role or I'm in this role. And I, you know, I see the work that you're doing. People love to talk about their successes. And unless there's a conflict of interest and there's a conflict between your company and their company, I always pick people who are not even in my industry, right? So I would reach out to IBM or Microsoft or HP, and I'd say 90% of the people that I reached out to were willing to talk to me. And I would go, hey, look, I'm going to be in your area. As long as you say, yes, I'm going to be in your area. I'm going to be in your area. I'd love to spend 30 minutes with you. Generally, again, 90% say yes. I get there. And then they spend a lot more than 30 minutes with me explaining what they've done. And some let me talk to people on their team, specifically in certain areas. And then I could say the same for my staff. They started doing the same thing, which gets me to the other piece. Once you do that, anybody that calls you, be open to saying yes. Mm. And you can't say yes to everybody. But again, almost the, the numbers of people who actually reach out and have conversations with you are pretty low. But I've also said that to my people. If somebody calls you and wants to figure out how to do it better, you go tell them. As long as it's not our competitor, as long as it's not a conflict of interest, you help them. Right. And so that's uh, became part of sort of the, the structure that we use. We, we leveraged a lot of really smart people to do really great things and change our company and ourselves. But we also give back to anybody that calls and asks for help as well. So there's the very practical assignment for people out there. If they want to be proactive and manage their careers, go ask someone who's doing it better or go help someone who's proactive enough to reach out and professional enough to, to do that. Steven, as we're coming to the, the end here, you've done a lot of work too around the, the topic of the day, which has been 
a topic for quite some time, which is around DEI. Any piece that you want to add? We did not get into that, but a huge part of your speaking and work also addresses this topic. Yeah, and you know, this kind of goes back to the culture that you create. To if you can figure out how to cult- cultivate a culture of listening to people, building trust, being transparent, people are going to come to you. We we have a bunch of different ways that we do this. We have what we call real talks, which is we we have executives host meetings and go. We don't have an agenda. You tell me what's on your mind. And then we'll talk about it. We do town halls. We do, of course, employee opinion surveys, but we just don't do employee opinion surveys. We have all of our executive own an action tracker to all of those gaps that are in that employee opinion survey. And then they have to meet with their teams on a quarterly basis to show them that they're doing work on it. So it goes back to you tell us what's wrong. We're going to work on it. If we don't, it's going to be really, really clear. Right. So we're going to put your needs as a person uh, at the forefront of what we do. And if you do that, the DEI piece becomes a lot easier to work on because you're listening to people. You've given people a platform to uh, speak their mind without uh, fear of retaliation. Uh, there's mechanisms to reach out, have conversations with uh, executives about what's wrong so they can tell us, look, Stephen, we really need to do this as far as women leadership, or we need to partner with this group, or we need to, we've got enough trust where people can come and have real conversations. With a lot of the individuals that I I coach, I tell them to be cautious at first and to study the culture and what is actually happening, who's getting promoted, is there retaliation going when you share something, is there transparency about what's happening? So the select few organizations that are walking the talk, that have that culture, enables a lot of these great things to happen, which is clearly driven your success at, at Panasonic. So hats off to you guys. And I know you're out there sharing that success and, and what you guys do with other leaders and particularly HR executives in the forums you work with. Yeah. And the good thing, Michael, is when you have that culture, you end up keeping all the best people and you end up hiring all the best people that match that culture model, right? Yeah. So you attract what you operate to, right? It goes back to what you do and don't tolerate. And then you end up attracting people that fit really, really well in that culture. And we've got some amazing people that's sort of allowed us to be a best place to work year over year over year. And I go back to what you said, where highly talented people come and stay (laughs) and stay. Final question, Stephen, was there there anything that I did not ask that I should have that you want to address? No, I don't think so. I think, uh, again... One of the biggest things that I would just say, because we started out this with being undeniable, is there you're not going to be undeniable if you're not just willing to put the work in. But the the interesting thing people realize when they start putting the work in is how much they love that. It seems really hard and it is hard. It's not easy. But people really it it becomes uh, you gravitate towards putting more work in and accomplishing something else and weird things start happening. If you start walking, as you start doing stuff with diet and exercise, the dynamics of even the family changes, your relationship with your daughter and son changes, your relationship with your spouse changes, all these things change as a result of you just putting in work in, even if it was unintended for that space. So it's pretty cool to see how people want to just keep this work going because of the unattended consequences of just putting in the work. So that's where I would leave it. 
Mm. You're going to be real surprised of the end result once you just commit to putting the work in. Yeah. And getting the coach and figuring out, yeah, how do you find somebody who cares about your success? That's a really big piece of that. Very much goes to both of us studied at Columbia, which was the the whole person aspect of coaching. Yep. Steven, absolute pleasure today. How do people best reach you, see your work, learn more about the great stuff also you guys are doing at Panasonic? Yeah, certainly if they go to LinkedIn and follow me on LinkedIn, then it has a, a link to my coaching business as well as to a lot of the things that I've published specific to the work we've done at Panasonic. So feel free to follow me, connect with me on LinkedIn and uh, go from there. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, incredibly inspiring as well. Yeah, I appreciate it too, Michael. Great conversation. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwinderoth.com.